We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. On today's episode of the Sunday Debate, we're examining the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Philippa Thomas. How did the decisions of one leader shape the direction of an institution with around 1.3 billion members and a truly global influence? As the world ushered in a new year on the 31st of December 2022, it also said goodbye to possibly its most well-known religious leader, Pope Benedict XVI. Joseph Ratzinger passed away that day at the age of 95, marking the end of a unique era in which two living popes simultaneously influenced the Catholic Church. Benedict took the unprecedented step of resigning as Pope in 2013 on grounds of ill health, the first pope to do so in 600 years, becoming Pope Emeritus, clearing the way for his successor, Pope Francis. Comparatively, the latter pope's image is shaped around a vision of openness and oftentimes reform, despite the deeply conservative traditions that lie at the heart of the church. And that's left the legacy of his predecessor, Pope Benedict, in somewhat ambiguous territory. As a cardinal, Ratzinger's uncompromising conservative views earned him the nickname God's Rottweiler. As Pope, his work was often perceived as a continuation of the conservative agenda of his predecessor, Pope John Paul II. As a Pope for the 21st century, though, Benedict had to acknowledge contemporary debates going on around issues that ranged from the increasing acceptance of homosexuality, the place of women in the church, the freedom of individuals to pursue alternative faiths, and of course, the serious allegations of abuse that have surrounded the Catholic priesthood. His critics say he listened to these issues rather than acted on them. However, he was capable of acknowledging different perspectives and saying sorry, something he had to do multiple times. He sparked outrage when quoting a text that was said to have insulted the Muslim faith that was in 2006. He had to apologise again to the Jewish community for the church's endorsement of a Holocaust denier in 2009. Ratzinger himself had been a member of the Hitler Youth during his German upbringing. 
he also said sorry repeatedly for the catalogue of abuses inflicted by paedophile priests. But was this enough? Perhaps Pope Emeritus Benedict will be best remembered for his most radical act, retiring in 2013. So this week's Sunday debate question is, what will be the legacy of Pope Benedict XVI? And I'm very pleased to say that joining us to discuss this, we have Massimo Fagioli, who's Professor of Theology at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. And Massimo was founding director for the Institute for Catholicism and Citizenship in Minnesota as well. And joining us from Michigan, writer and editor of Catholic literary journal The Lamp, Matthew Walther. Welcome both. And let's begin with that central question, your thoughts, Massimo, first on what kind of legacy Pope Benedict will be remembered for. He leaves behind two kinds of legacy, I think. One is his decision to resign in 2013, which was a revolutionary decision, even though it has always been possible in the Catholic tradition and in the canon law, because it was unexpected. And because it's an experiment of these last 10 years, which we don't know yet if it has been successful or not, because we are still going through uh, aftershocks of that uh, decision of those 10 years of those men he surrounded himself with. And then for a second reason, because Josef Ratzinger was a major figure shaping Catholicism, its intellectual life and its reputation since the late 50s for more than 60 years. And he recapitulates a certain trajectory of of Catholicism embracing modernity in the early 60s, uh, the Second Vatican Council, and then rapidly becoming disenchanted in the 70s, 80s, until today, when there is uh, clearly a pushback against modernity, liberalism, democracy, modern ideas uh, in the conservative side of, of Catholicism. So for these two reasons, he leaves a very complex, very rich legacy, which should not be diminished or, or belittled simply as the thought of a conservative Catholic. And we'll have time in this conversation to delve into that complexity a little to try to explore what you're talking about. First, let me put that same question to you, Matthew, about what kind of legacy you believe Pope Benedict XVI will be remembered for. Uh, Massimo's right to single out the abdication as something that will have enormous consequences. Pope Benedict's uh, successor, Pope Francis, has made it clear that if he thought that he was incapable of fulfilling the duties associated with this office, he might resign. It's at least on the table. For a number of reasons, that actually seems to me unlikely, but just the fact that this is now a live issue and will continue to be with popes for the foreseeable future, I think is an extraordinary thing whose significance is difficult to overstate. But I think the other aspect of Benedict's legacy that stands out to me is how unwittingly or otherwise Rather than, I think, continuing the sort of conservative synthesis that had emerged in the church during the uh, reign of his predecessor, John Paul II, I think there's a sense in which he upended and destroyed that consensus because by conceding that, for example, the traditional Latin mass had never been abrogated 
and allowing for its widespread celebration by writing and speaking about what he called the hermeneutic of continuity, the importance of acknowledging that the church before the Second Vatican Council was organically present today in the churches as she exists now. I think that what he did was reopen a number of debates that John Paul II had seemed to suggest were settled. So on the one hand, among sort of traditionalist or conservative-leaning Catholics, I would say his legacy has been to make the traditional liturgy and other conservative practices, even within the context of the New Rite, much more important than they were during John Paul II's pontificate, but also for more progressive Catholics. I think that this atmosphere of debate and questioning and everything being on the table has reawoken debates about questions like the ordination of women and revisiting questions that had answers that were seemingly immutable about various moral issues. So I think that's really his legacy for me. I would like to come back to that to think about what Benedict has left the church in terms of settled questions and opened questions. First, I'd like to give our listeners a little more context. Massimo, coming back to you, an idea for those who don't know his biography about where Pope Benedict came from and what shaped his early experiences and his outlook as as a man as well as a priest. So Benedict was born immediately before Hitler took power in Nazi Germany. He came of age in the early post-World War II Germany, and he was ordained priest in 1951. His idea of the church was typical of a German Catholic in the 50s, which saw Catholicism at the center as the pillar of the Western civilization, of the German civilization. It was a Catholic church fighting within itself, but also struggling to find a way to reconcile with modernity. It was a major force as a theologian, as an expert at the Second Vatican Council, or Vatican II, which was celebrated in Rome between 1962-1965, as one of the modernizers, one of the progressives. And then, at the end of the Second Vatican Council, between 64 and 65, Vatican II took a more radical turn towards more dialogical approach. And there begins a trajectory of Josef Ratzinger taking distance from liberal progressive theology. And in the 70s, he becomes the opposition within German Catholicism, but slowly within global Catholicism to a Catholic embrace of a, a secular world, of secular culture, uh, liberal views on morality, on politics. And he rises to, the, to one of the, of the highest positions in the Catholic Church as the prefect, the man in charge of the congregation for the doctrine of the, of the faith in the Vatican, which is the successor of the Holy Office of the Inquisition in 1982. He is there the most important policymaker with John Paul II until 2005, when he's elected very quickly as the successor of John Paul II on April the 19th, 2005. On many issues, he continues the policies of John Paul II against liberation theology, 
against women's ordination, on moral issues, abortion, contraception. On some issues, he goes deeper. And as you, Matthew Arthur, was mentioning, he decides to bring back the old way of celebrating the Catholic Mass, which had been changed, in my opinion, and abrogated by Vatican II, in 1963, replacing the old Mass in Latin with the new Mass, which was supposed to be celebrated mostly in the vernacular language. He has been for seven decades the symbol of an academic theologian who serves the Church as a policymaker, which, which is unusual because usually academic theologians stay out of church politics, or they do church politics from the outside. And this has been part of of his life and of his way of influencing Catholicism as a theologian first, as a bishop of Munich for four years, and then a cardinal in the Vatican, and then as a pope for almost eight years. But also in the decade after his ordination between February 2013 and his death on the last day, of 2022, he has continued to be visible in his own ways with books, articles, essays. It's been a major, major figure in uh, that has few comparisons in this last century and in these last five centuries also, I would say. Matthew, in my journalist way, I'm going to try to sum something up and say that, that Benedict has been seen certainly in the press, as something of a conservative enforcer within the Catholic Church. Feel free to tell me how reductive that is. But it's my way of asking you, do you feel he's been misunderstood? I think that that's one of those interesting questions where it really depends on the vantage point of the person who's asking and the person who's answering, right? From the perspective of, you know, ordinary secular readers of newspapers or something, I can certainly understand why Benedict would be described as conservative. But then again, um, if the same question is being posed by the standards of the ordinary secular Britain or American, Pope Francis, would, who has compared modern attitudes about gender to nuclear weapons uh, and says that abortion is like hiring a hitman, you know, would also be considered quite conservative. In the case of Benedict, I think that there is a sense in which the debates I alluded to earlier that he sort of reopened about the meaning and ultimate significance, for example, of the Second Vatican Council, I think it's fair to say that he never went as far in the direction of sort of questioning, you know, say the significance of the council as some of his supporters would today. And I I think of, for example, of One of the last uh, published texts by him that we have from last October, he sent a letter to a conference that was being organized uh, in his honor at a Catholic university here in Ohio in the United States. And uh, in this brief text, he said that from his perspective, uh, the Second Vatican Council had totally transformed the church's understanding of ecclesiology, which is to say of what the church is, and that this was both necessary and important. I'm sure Massimo would agree that a lot of Catholics who revere Benedict for his liberalization of the old mass, for example, would not necessarily agree with that conclusion about the church's uh, necessary transformation of you know, her self-understanding. I think he's being misunderstood uh, 
especially from those who see themselves as his spiritual children or intellectual children, especially in the Anglosphere, because of a very complex issue of the transition from Latin to English, which, which is typical of the United States and to some extent also of the United Kingdom. One problem is that the theology of Joseph Ratzinger is more complex, is more sophisticated than the so-called Ratzingerians uh, see it, and especially in their views of the Second Vatican Council, which Pope Benedict defended in some ways, but always in ways that distinguished between what was the real council of the bishops and of the theologians and what he called the council of the media, the media spin of liberal intelligentsia. So this is true. What I believe, and I disagree here with Matthew probably, is that there has been really a shocking effect of his decision on the Latin Mass. And this is where the rupture between Pope Benedict and his successor uh, happened between 2021 and 2022, because there, there was clearly a difference of opinion. And I remember when Pope Benedict decided to reintroduce the Latin Mass uh, on July 7th, 2007, was that no one expected such a radical act that would really break the uh, compromise that had been forged by John Paul II. And so here, yes, he has been misunderstood and radicalized by some of his followers, but in Ratzinger as a pope, as a cardinal who maintained an intellectual ethos of someone who, with a certain pride of his ideas and of his knowledge of the tradition of the church, that act was really an act of eversion. And I say that with all due respect. And so he has been misunderstood, but I think we will understand in the next 10, 20, 50 years how radical some of his decisions were. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. really interesting to hear about what he stood for, what he actually did, uh, and what his followers wanted of him. And I want to turn this around and think about what the senior leadership within the church wanted when uh, Pope Benedict became head of the church in 2005. Massimo, first, what do you think leaders within the church were looking for when they elected him at quite an advanced age to become the next pope? And do you think they too were surprised or shocked to use a word that you've used? The conclave of 2005 was in some sense the rehearsal of what happened eight years later when Pope Francis was elected because the runner-up in 2005 was Jorge Mario Bergoglio. So those who elected him in April 2005 were looking for someone who was not going to give them surprises a man who had no interest in church politics because he he had been living in the Vatican for almost 25 years, but he never saw himself as part of those political games. So he fit a certain classical image of the perfect candidate of the papacy saying, Dominion on sum dignus, Lord, I'm not worthy. And so this is usually a convincing argument for those who want to elect someone who who cannot be accused of playing politics. And they were looking for a sure pontificate because this is how the papal election works. So when you elect a very old man, it's because you you want to create some kind of uh, transition, a period of uh, decantation, like for an old wine, after a 27-year-old pontificate. And so they were looking for something, a short pontificate. What they did not expect was a series of decisions that were revolutionary on the liturgy, for example, a series also of international incidents, which you mentioned in your introduction with Islam, but also with with other international actors, I mean, Turkey and Germany and so on. They surely did not expect a pope to resign because John Paul II had made very clear that in his opinion, the papacy cannot be resigned. And so they were looking for for something that in the end they didn't get because it was a very eventful pontificate. So it was expected to be relatively short, but not eight years short. And Matthew, from your perspective, how would you characterize the achievements of that short-lived, but in Catholic terms, perhaps action-packed pontificate? There's a sense in which I will always look back 
on Benedict's pontificate with a certain nostalgia. You know, I was baptized Catholic and, you know, made my first communion as a child. But um, the church was not very important in our home life. And by the time I was, you know, 11 or so, I decided I wasn't going to Mass anymore. And I really didn't return to the church until I was in my early 20s. And when I did so, it was, of course, during Benedict's pontificate. And so I'll always associate that time, a sort of new springtime in my own attitude toward the church with some of the achievements of that era. For example, his creation of the ordinariate for Anglicans who wish to become Roman Catholic, but retain aspects of what he called the Anglican patrimony. That's one of those things that in a global context perhaps seems uh, minor or insignificant, but within the Anglosphere, it's something extraordinary, especially when we consider some of the very prominent churchmen who have been received into the RC fold. And also, again, the liberalization of the old mass. So the context in which I returned to the church, my bishop at the time was Alexander Sample, who's now Archbishop of Portland. And he used to celebrate the traditional Latin mass every Sunday in his own cathedral. And when I compared this to the sort of dreary folk rock mass, you know, uh, that I'd grown up with, this sort of atmosphere of decay and resignation and the whole sense of uh, the Catholic Church is this empty social obligation for old people who had nothing better to do with their time to this world of a sort of dashing, charismatic young bishop and this great intellectual in the Vatican who was telling us that the church was claiming as the spoils of Egypt, not just the greatest uh, vernacular translation of the Bible undertaken, but um, the whole sort of legacy of English literary and cultural achievement, the music, the writings of someone like Dr. Johnson or even Jane Austen as part of this wide ranging Anglican patrimony. All of this was so striking for me. And that's, so that's always how I think with a certain fondness of Benedict's pontificate. I love that on Intelligence Square conversations, we can range to the point where we've brought Jane Austen into our conversation about Benedict's legacy. I really, really appreciate that. And we've heard something there, Matthew, of the way in which Benedict's papacy for you represented something that was revitalizing and perhaps more inclusive. Massimo, what of those who felt maybe excluded or overlooked? Can you bring us something of the other side of the coin? I understand well what Matthew just said. I moved from Italy to the United States in 2008, and I saw how much enthusiasm this pontificate uh, had created in certain North American circles. I can tell you one anecdote. Uh, just one week after the famous lecture Pope Benedict gave at the University of Regensburg in Germany, where he used uh, those unfortunate words about Islam, I met with a cardinal who was working in the Vatican since the 1970s, and I knew him very well. And I saw him in tears. He told me, after that speech, what remains of the authority of the papacy. He had worked for his entire life in ecumenical relations, interreligious relations, uh, ostpolitik dialogue with uh, Russia, communist world. He was shocked, and that was true for many others uh, in the institutional church. So why am I saying this? Because Pope Benedict, he brought in 
a new militant attitude about Catholicism facing modern, secular modernity and this sense of, of decay and of decline. But he was a conservative, which has become important to, to understand our times because his conservatism was not institutionalist, not exactly a clerical Catholicism. So he was for a militant Catholicism made of small groups, of active groups in the media, in theology, and in parishes. And this really had a major appeal in places like in the Anglosphere, where Catholicism has been historically a minority. But if you talk to European Catholics, there is a completely different view of Josef Ratzinger as a theologian who had contributed greatly to the Second Vatican Council, to this opening to modern culture, but he quickly turned back to his theology of the 1950s, a certain view of lay people in the church according to the 50s, of women in the church, 1950s, all that. So here there is really a, a split-screen picture of his legacy and I remember that time as very interesting as an academic studying those speeches. But as a Catholic, very concerning because Catholicism was turning back towards a Euro-Occidental identity with a posture towards Islam, which was not just that speech of September 2006, but his words on the compatibility between Turkey and the European Union. It was a very interesting time, but also very worrying on issues that were about the compatibility and the peace, finally, between Catholicism and the global world. And Matthew, did Benedict XVI do enough to address that awful and historical and current issue of child sex abuse by Catholic priests? The short answer is, is obviously not. Um, and we can see this by looking at how much uh, his successor has continued to struggle with this issue. I think it's, it's, a very, uh, it's a very difficult problem whose consequences will be with us for many decades still. And I think in part, his decision to abdicate was motivated by his feeling of sort of hopelessness when confronted with the array of forces within the church that he felt he could not overcome. As far as the question goes of whether he worked assiduously to um, root out and to destroy the element within the church that's responsible uh, for this issue, I think the answer is yes. But as any good Catholic moral theologian would acknowledge, there's a difference between our intentions and, uh, you know, our successes or failures. You know, it's, it's very difficult now to revisit the sort of cultural atmosphere of the 1960s and 70s when it was considered, um, you know, uh, a sort of liberating thing for teenagers to um, become sexually active, to become involved with uh, older people. But we're talking that, about children. We're talking about children being abused. I want to pick up a word which you used, which was responsibility, and ask Massimo whether 
you feel Benedict XVI did enough to try to root out those responsible for crimes or their cover-up? He did not enough, as Pope Francis is not doing enough. Uh, certainly, he did more than his predecessor, John Paul II, because the Church of John Paul II was in total denial of the phenomenon, of the problem. So Pope Benedict was uh, smart enough to make some changes in the authority of dealing with those crimes, uh, some legal changes. Uh, he knew more than he could do about that when he was cardinal. And so we see that some major decisions made by him as ultimate judge in the Catholic Church happened immediately after he is elected pope. When he was cardinal under John Paul II, he chose not to rock the boat and to make revelations on the founder of the Legionaries of Crisis, for example. Now, on that text of April 2019, it's a very important one, okay? It's not clear, actually, if he was the real author of the text. This is a mystery because it's not clear if he was able to I mean, write such a long text at 92. But certainly, it gave us a glimpse into his perception of the issue, which was mostly... As a, as a kind of crime, pedophilia, as he defines that, because we know that it is much bigger now, as something coming from the cultural environment outside. This is important because it fits Pope Benedict, Josef Ratzinger's view of the problem as something that can be fixed by doubling down on the traditional image of the priesthood on the traditional catechism, or the, or the traditional moral theology, which is something that is now changing. So now, with Pope Francis, the real change is we know that there are cultural influences outside the culture on youth, on medical, uh, on mental health, and so on. But there are also internal problems. How What's the role of women in the church, what is the image of the priesthood on the pedestal, and so on. This is a major difference. So, But there's no question that the modern age of Catholicism and of the papacy dealing seriously with the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church begins with Pope Benedict. This is something that even uh, victims and survivors have said many times, and I do agree with that. Well, just before we wrap up, I'd like to ask whether either of our panellists are now seeing the legacy of Pope Benedict in anything of a new light after today's discussion. And uh, uh, Matthew, I'm going to ask you first what this conversation has done for you. So oddly enough, I think that in the broad strokes, Massimo and I largely agree about Benedict and the nature of his legacy especially how by uh, sort of opening the doors to um, a reconsideration of the Second Vatican Council and its legacy by liberalizing the traditional mass and so on, he did sort of bring about a revolution. If you like, you could think of it as the end of the end of history. Um, and so I think he and I largely agree about that. I think the difference is... Um, 
what our personal feelings are are about uh, that legacy and what he accomplished. Massimo, do you think you largely agree about the legacy of Benedict? We are both Catholics, so we do agree on the importance of the unity of the Catholic Church, which is one of the major themes of Pope Benedict's theology. What we do not agree on, certainly, is on the, the effect of dividing Catholics on the liturgy at Mass. I believe that this um, is still a major problem, especially in the United States, in the Anglosphere. It will continue to be a big problem and even bigger ones in light of the revelations of the secretary that have been published just a few days after his death. This conversation is a perfect image uh, of this mix of agreement and fierce disagreements, especially on, on the liturgy, which is the highest and the most important things Catholics can do together, actually. So it's not a secondary issue. Well, I really appreciate what's been an open and thoughtful discussion. And I'd like to thank uh, our guests, Massimo Fagioli and Matthew Walser. I've been Philippa Thomas. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>